Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you speak to us from it this morning. Give us ears to hear you and hearts to obey. Show us more of who you are. Show us more of who we are. That we may better love and serve you. To the glory of your name. Amen. I invite you to uh, open your Bibles if you have not already done so or pull them up on your phone, whatever your preferred method. We'll be jumping around a little bit. There is, as, as a, uh, a youth, perhaps no greater fear than wrecking your parents' stuff. And the more expensive the stuff, the greater the fear. I had a professor share with us a story about a time that she had borrowed her father's car and got into an accident. I don't recall how extensive the damage was, but it wasn't extensive enough that it was easily noticeable. And she shared about when her father surveyed the damage and how he just stood there silently staring at it. Which, if you ask me, might actually be worse than yelling. And finally, after a long and awkward silence, he simply said, we can fix this. In our passage, we see Israel wreck the covenant God made with them. They do so deliberately. They do so knowingly. And they do so extensively. They commit what seems unthinkable at this point. After being rescued by the hand of God from slavery in Egypt, after seeing plagues sent on their enemies, on their oppressors, after seeing their oppressors annihilated, after seeing God's aid come to them in the form of miraculous military victory multiple times, after seeing their needs provided for miraculously in the wilderness, water from a rock, bread from heaven, daily, after all of this, they turn away from God to the point of making their own God. The very first thing God told them not to do. It's not an accident. It is rebellion. Why? How did this happen? More importantly, can it be fixed? If so, how? I don't know about you, but this is one of those passages where I am tempted to yell at the pages and ask, what are you doing? And unfortunately, as much as we might like to distance ourselves from the text, I've tried to show throughout this series, as we've gone through Exodus, that Israel in their humanness and in their brokenness very much reflect our reality. And so at the end of the day, we're faced with a question, what is wrong with us? And so it's worth recognizing how and why Israel gets to this place and what it means for being in relationship with God. Last week we saw God's commands directly spoken to Israel from the mountain in the form of the Ten Commandments. And since then, Moses received more commands from God in greater detail. And in the commands Moses receives, we, be, we see both the holiness 
of God and the heart of God. If you go through them, there is a huge cultural and time gap. That might be difficult for us modern readers. Understand there's realities that are recognized. That does not necessarily mean they are affirmed. Even so, Israel's law, if you compare it to laws of the surrounding nations, is extremely progressive. The primary example of that is slavery as an example of, of a cultural reality. And that does not, and it should not sit well with us modern readers. But even so, even though the reality is recognized, there are laws limiting its effect in the society. Slaves are freed every seven years. Are, they are protected under the law. Then the slave trade is prohibited. That's just an example. And there are stiff penalties for the law, which shows God is very serious about it being upheld. It also shows the seriousness of God's heart for people as well. Because when the, we take into account the cultural distance, the time distance, and the witness of the entire law, Everything God tells Moses is framed by love of God and love of neighbor, as we recognized last week. God wants us in relationship with him, and he wants people taken care of. Moses shares these commands with the people, and they accept God's covenant in chapter 24. And we're told Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and that the Israelites or to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the mountain. One of the many powerful manifestations they see of God's presence. And Moses receives specific instructions for worship. What to do, what to build, how to build it. And included in these instructions are instructions for the tabernacle. A place where God intends to dwell with his people. We see that in chapter 25. And Moses is there 40 days and 40 nights. And that's what's going on when God tells Moses that the Israelites have made an idol shaped like a calf. While God is giving Moses instructions so that he may dwell with his people, his people are carrying out plans to abandon him. So let's take a look at what this episode First, we'll take a look at what it teaches about us. And one of the biggest things that this episode shows us about ourselves is that we're going to serve something. If we don't serve God, we are going to make our own gods. This is what Israel is doing. And as is often the case with us, they do so when God is not acting like they would like him to. He has kept their leader away from them longer than they would like. And so they look to replace him. Now to modern readers, it might seem silly, especially after all they've been through and seen, to make a handmade idol and worship it. And even to recognize or, or to, to say that this is what brought us out of Egypt. But the appeal, however is that this is a God that they can see. This is a God that they can control. Or at least has, gives them that illusion of control. Because ultimately, this calf cannot save them. 
We saw what can happen when we serve false gods, when we saw God bring the plagues on Egypt. You can even decide to serve yourself as some do and still become a prisoner to your own desires. An extreme, uh, just an extreme example of that is addiction, when we can no longer say no to ourselves to the point where it destroys us. And even if you decide to be the captain of your own ship, you cannot control the sea. It makes far more sense to worship the one who does, who made the sea, who made everything, who controls all things. Another appeal of worshiping this idol is that whatever the demands of the idol, none of them are ethical. They might sacrifice to the calf. This calf will never command them to love. This is why the commandments are framed by love of God and love of neighbor. And why scripture recognizes that, doing those things as greater than the actual rituals. Because if those things are not there, if love of God and love of neighbor are not there, then there's no point to ritual. If our faith doesn't shape us so that we better reflect the heart of God, then all we are doing is jumping through hoops to meet technicalities. Religious requirements do not have the same effect as living faith. We can do this in our own context as well. You don't have to follow Jesus to go to church. A lot of people do that. Go to church without following Jesus because guess what? It's a lot easier to go to church than it is to follow Jesus. Churches, depending on your tradition, one hour, maybe two Maybe more. Part of your week, Jesus asks for our lives. We go to church so that we can better serve Jesus throughout our lives. An idol won't make us any better, even if it's a religious idol. Ultimately, as I've said before, If we serve a God that is not the Lord, there is going to be fallout. Whatever gods we create will not go well for us. Israel has only gone this far because God was with them, because God has provided for them, because God has protected them. As the story progresses, they're they're moving toward taking the land that God promised them so that they can fulfill their purpose as a priestly nation to lead others to knowledge of the Lord. A nation that would bless all the nations of the world. And as the story progresses, they only do so because God is with them. In fact, later in the story, because of their disobedience, God delays the time that they can enter into the land. And they try to take it on their own. And they fail badly. Israel doesn't stand a chance without God. The story also teaches us some very important qualities about God. 
We'll look at a couple of them. The first is that God is just. And to fully appreciate what follows in the narrative, it helps to recognize that in the law God gave Moses, and that Moses passed on to the people, and that the people agreed to, it says, Whoever sacrifices to any, other, to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. Chapter 22, verse 20. They are guilty of breaking a law that they have just accepted. And so God is just when he tells Moses to leave them alone so that his anger may destroy them. And he can start again with Moses. We see God's justice later in the passage, or later in the chapter, when people do not cease in their revelry and they are executed, about 3,000 of them. And later in verse 35, God sends a plague. And when we get to chapter 33, the Lord tells Moses to go into the land he promised, and he will send his angel ahead of them to drive out the inhabitants, but he will not go with them. And in 33.4 it says, When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So Israel stripped off their ornaments at Mount Hor, their jewelry, essentially. And in his intercession for the people, Moses shows us the weight of the prospect of God not going with them, even if he doesn't destroy them outright. When he says in 33, verse 15, it says, Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Essentially, if you don't go with us, what's the point? Even if they're not destroyed, what's the point if they're not fulfilling their purpose? They're going to be like everyone else, to their own detriment, if not their own destruction. And it could quite possibly be the latter, as we've already seen. When they take the land, it only happens with God's help. They need God. Not just to protect them, but if they are to have any hope of fulfilling their purpose as a priestly nation. Moses understands the weight of that. Fortunately for us, the passage also shows us that God is merciful. Even in the midst of his justice, there are two opportunities for repentance. After Moses destroys the calf and then scatters the resulting powder in the water and has the people drink. And this resembles a trial rite that shows up later in the law to establish guilt. And there's another chance for repentance when, before the execution, Moses stands at the entrance of the camp, calling for whoever is for the Lord to come to him. Fortunately, the Lord does ultimately relent after Moses intercedes. Now understand, when Moses is interceding, when Moses has this conversation with God, he's not selling God on the concept of mercy. He's not talking God down. He's appealing to God's mercy. The interchange shows in this conversation because God is meeting us at a human level to show us these qualities of himself. 
And the Lord answers in chapter 33, 17, saying, he will do what Moses has asked. And then Moses asks to see God's glory. God says in verse 19 that he will cause his goodness to pass in front of him, but he can't see his face and live. And so God will cover him in a cleft as he passes by and he can see his back. And when God does this, we see a fuller declaration of who God is as he passes by Moses in in chapter 34, verse 6. It says, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We see in the statement both God's justice and his grace and his mercy. As we talked about when it mentions the subsequent generations, a lot of that speaks to the fallout of sin in a context where multiple generations could live together or the repeating of sins throughout generations and dealing with those consequences. And then Moses intercedes with God again. And God answers starting in uh, chapter 34, verse 9. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said to him, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. And so God restores the covenant. He fixes it. Because he is merciful and gracious, not because they deserve it. And God gives them select commands, repeating kind of a summary of the law. And he, gives Moses, he has Moses write new tablets for the covenant because a holy God wants to be with his people. God repairs the relationship and restores the covenant. This does not happen without his mercy and his grace. So what do we do? Because like it or not, this is our story too. This is our story at an individual level. I talk, I've mentioned multiple times about the allure of money and power as alternate gods. And I often harp on those too because they are huge in our culture. How many people work themselves into the ground just to make more, even though they already have enough at the expense of perhaps their own well-being or their family's well-being? How many people sacrifice their integrity or backstab others just to get more power, more influence, to get ahead? You almost can't open the paper or turn on the news without hearing some kind of story like that. This is our story collectively. The church throughout its history has abandoned the gospel, has abandoned God for a cheap imitation. You cannot mention church history long before somebody mentions the Crusades. The truth is, churches have been complicit, even sometimes advocating for evil throughout church history. It's not just the Crusades, it's the history of imperialism. 
It's slavery in this country. It's the segregation laws in our history. Or even outside it, the Holocaust, where churches were either silent or complicit in the slaughter. Even today, we see the church often ignore voices of the marginalized or the oppressed and instead spend their energy on courting friendship with those in power. We've seen the church ignore, if not silence, those who have been abused within church walls just to protect image. Churches have sacrificed relationship with the living God for a God that is no God. Gods of power, gods of influence, gods of image. So what do we do? And if you notice, even though God wants to start again with Moses, Moses does not distance himself. Rather, he, it's almost like he's repenting with them. He is, he is interceding for them. And at one point even says, God, if you're going to blot them out, blot me out as well. And so, this is our story. But there's nothing to do before a holy God but to mourn our sin and ask for his mercy individually and corporately. There's nothing to do but repent and receive. Repent. Turn away from our sin and turn to God and acknowledge where we have sinned and to receive God's mercy and his grace along with a renewed sense of his lordship. And we see Israel do this. This is why Israel removes their jewelry in mourning. It says in chapter 33, verse 4, whenever the people saw the pillar, when, when Moses goes in, at the, into the tent of meeting, it says, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. And that's before God decides what he's ultimately going to do. And their repentance culminates as the book progresses with, as they build the tabernacle. They are invited to give to its construction another opportunity for repentance. And they build the tabernacle, essentially like a movable sanctuary for God to live with them as they travel through the wilderness so, so that he may live among them. See, God said back in chapter 25, verse 8, then make them, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Because this was God's plan all along. Our compassionate and gracious God wants to live among us. And for that to happen, Israel has to repent of their sin and align their lives with God's worship. That's what we find in chapter 40 as the book ends. If you look at verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. God is still with them, guiding them, providing for them. This is our story too. Not just Israel's sin, but God's grace and mercy. When the Gospel of John talks about Jesus in, chapter, in John chapter 1, saying that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, the word used to describe making his dwelling among us is rooted in the word for tabernacle. That is not an accident. We sing about Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. In John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And so we see the grace of God in extending the law to Israel so that he can live among them. But then we see grace on top of that as Jesus came to live among us to fulfill the requirements of the law and his death. And because he did that, because he dwelt among us as one of us and died to fulfill the requirements of the law, we can live a life where God through his Holy Spirit dwells in us with the hope of living with God forever because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we would receive God's mercy and grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This Wednesday begins the season of Lent, which is in part a time of reflection in the church calendar on who we are before God including our mortality and a mourning of our sin in preparation for observing Good Friday, the death of Jesus, and celebrating Easter Sunday, Jesus' resurrection. The reality of this passage is what we prepare to celebrate, that God wants to dwell with us and has made a way to do so Let's respond to him by turning from our sins and aligning our lives with his worship that we may know our compassionate and gracious Lord and that he may dwell with us. Let's prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper.